The story of the Sikhs continues as we visit the far reaches of the eastern Himalayas with Nanak and Mardana. We join them on the ancient Indo-Egyptian trade route as they journey to the heart of the Islamic world. We then return with Nanak to his homeland as he gives shape to a new world religion. This is co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong, welcoming you to join us in this fascinating journey. History tells us that in the 8th century, the king of Tibet, Trisong Detsen, invited the Indian scholar and abbot, Shantarakshita, to Tibet, who began to establish the Buddha Dharma in Tibet. However, indigenous forces that opposed the Dharma were increasing in strength. Neither the might of the king nor the power of the abbot could subdue them, and so they invited Guru Rinpoche to come to Tibet. The precious Guru, Padmasambhava Rinpoche, was not only endowed with all the true qualities of a great spiritual guide, knowledge, compassion, and infinite capacity, but was also a master who commanded extraordinary power. It was because of his overarching power and strength that the Buddha Dharma was really established in Tibet and then developed so that all the teachings of the Buddha were preserved as a living tradition and have continued to the present day. These are the words of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He is speaking about the legendary Buddhist teacher Guru Padmasambhava who established Buddhism in Tibet and its surrounding areas in the 8th century. On the borders of Tibet, lay a small, beautiful land in the rugged eastern Himalayas. This land was blessed by Guru Padmasambhava and given the name Beyul Damajong, or the Valley of Hidden Treasures. In modern times, this land is known as Sikkim and is now part of India. The presence of Guru Padmasambhava looms large in Sikkim. He is revered as the patron saint and beautiful statues that show him in all of his glory adorn many monasteries in the land. Seven centuries after the times of Guru Padmasambhava, two travelers trudged their way to the remote Beyul Damajong Valley. They had been wandering for more than a decade. They had traveled to the eastern reaches of the Indian subcontinent and then had made their way to the south trekking through impenetrable forests and crossing many swiftly flowing rivers. They had traveled all the way to the island of Serendip, which came to be known as Ceylon and then Sri Lanka in modern times. They had made the long journey back home to the Punjab. Nanak and Mardana had traveled to places that few in their generation could even imagine. Nanak was greeted with great joy when he returned home. For a short while, he cast off his motley traveling costume 
and adopted more conventional attire. His parents, Metakalu and Tripta, were getting old. His wife Sulakhani had been raising their two sons, Sirichand and Lakshmidas, on her own, as their father wandered with Mardana. The lads were growing up, and she must have heaved a sigh of relief at Nanak's return. The relief, however, was to be short-lived, for the wanderers had left home again. This time they headed north, traveling to the foothills and then into the western Himalayas. They spent time in what is modern-day Himachal Pradesh and then entered Nepal. They visited Buddhist sites and important Hindu temples as they continued to journey east. Finally, they arrived at Mount Tonglu on the eastern border of Nepal, and there, at an altitude of 9,000 feet, the travelers entered Sikkim. The beauty and ruggedness of the eastern Himalayas has to be seen to be believed. Sikkim, even today, is a remote land, and most of it is unoccupied and pristine. It is as far from the Sikh homeland of the Punjab as one can imagine. It seems almost miraculous that Nanak and Mardana, traveling on foot in a time when there were no roads, only faintly marked mountain paths and goat tracks, would have got to so inaccessible a place. The travelers continued inward into the small principality and came upon Tumlong, which at one point was the capital of the kingdom. True to their nature, they found a place to rest in the woods and Mardana began to play the rabab. Nanak began to sing. Local legend has it that their music enchanted the birds and animals of the forest who started gathering around them. The local people took note of the spectacle and the king was informed of their presence. It is said that at the time there was a scarcity of food in the area and not much would grow there. Nanak unwrapped a small bundle in which packed in banana leaves was a portion of rice, part of their provisions for the journey. He gave the package to the king with a blessing, and the rice was sprinkled in a field. The banana packing was buried in the corner of the field. From that gift and blessing sprang rich crops of rice and bananas. Sikkim became known as the Valley of Rice, and to this day, rice and bananas are grown in abundance in this forbidding land. From Tumlong, Nanak and Mardana continued northwards and the terrain became even more rugged and inhospitable. They arrived at the northern reaches of Sikkim, where the impossibly high altitudes make it almost impossible to breathe. At an altitude of 17,000 feet in northern Sikkim lies a lake 
surrounded by snow-covered mountains. The lake shines a deep green in the light of the sun, its water sweet and refreshing. It is said that when Nanak arrived, the local people were suffering because they had no source of drinking water. Nanak is said to have struck the ground with his staff, causing a sweet spring of water to burst forth, which then formed the lake. The lake is called Guru Dongbar. In the Punjabi language, the word staff is translated to dung and strike is translated to mar. Growing up as a child in Sikkim, I had heard stories of Nanak's visit to the land hundreds of years earlier. Nanak's visit is apparently well documented in ancient Sikkimese texts. My father, who came to Sikkim in the mid-1950s and lived there for decades, cultivated a relationship with His Holiness the 16th Karmapa, Sikkim's most prominent Buddhist Lama, whose seat was at the Rumtek Monastery. My father would visit him often and ask him about Nanak's journey, which he had knowledge of. The holy men of Sikkim revere Nanak as Nanak Rinpoche. Rinpoche is a Buddhist honorific, meaning precious one, and is typically used to refer to reincarnated Tibetan lamas. This quote is from an article written by His Holiness, the 11th Tungpa Tulku, also from a line of reincarnated Tibetan lamas in the newspaper The Indian Express in 1966. In Tibet, Guru Nanak is revered as an emanation of Guru Padmasambhava. Many of our pilgrims visit Amritsar and holy places, which they look upon as equal in importance to Buddhagaya. They always say that the Sikhs treat them with great respect and are very hospitable. Most Tibetans know that Guru Nanak visited Tibet, and the mystical ideas of our two religions are very similar. I have noticed that the Sikhs never worship images in their shrines, but that there is in the center the book, the Guru Granth Sahib. In our tradition, one of the last things that the Buddha said was that in the dark age after his death, he would return in the form of books. At that time, he said, look up to me and respect me. Just as we do not believe in mystifying rituals, so in Sikh ceremonies it seems that the people simply read and contemplate the words of their texts so that no misunderstandings arise. Both Guru Nanak and the Buddha said to their followers that the real nature of the universe should not be limited by the idea of personal God and gods. Those who made their offerings at their shrines should remember that the whole universe was the power offering offered before and to itself. It seems 
that there is much in common between our philosophies. The Hajj is an annual pilgrimage to Mecca, the most holy of Muslim cities, and is mandatory for every adult Muslim who is capable physically and financially of performing it at least once in his lifetime. A Muslim who completes the pilgrimage is honored with the title of Hajji. While the Hajj is associated with Prophet Muhammad, its history stretches back to the times of the biblical prophet Abraham. The circumambulation of the holy Kaaba, the cubicle building that lies at the heart of Islam's holiest mosque in Mecca, is the centerpiece of the Hajj. Non-Muslims are and have been strictly forbidden from visiting Mecca and the Kaaba. Joseph Pitts was an English sailor who was born in 1663. When he was 17, he was captured by Algerian pirates and sold into slavery. He converted to Islam and was taken by his master to Mecca on the Hajj. Pitt was very impressed and moved on beholding the Muslims' devotion to their faith. It was a sight indeed, able to pierce one's heart. To behold so many thousands of Muslims in their garments of humility and mortification, with their naked heads and cheeks watered with tears. More than a hundred and fifty years before Pitt's Hajj, two would-be Hajis left their home in the Punjab seeking the path to Mecca. The road to Mecca was long and treacherous. Besides, while entry into Mecca was not strictly forbidden to non-Muslims like it is in modern times, only Muslims were expected to undertake the Hajj. Nanak, whose non-conformist credentials were rather well established by then, decided to solve the problem in his usual practical manner. He put on the blue garb of a Muslim holy man and equipped himself with a pilgrim's staff as well as a prayer carpet and a cup for his ablutions before prayer. Nanak and Mardana joined a caravan of the faithful on its way to Mecca. After a leisurely journey through the modern-day Pakistani provinces of Sindh and Balochistan, Nanak and Mardana arrived at the famous Hindu temple at Hingalaj. From there, they proceeded to the port of Miani and boarded a ship carrying pilgrims bound for Aden. From Aden, they took another ship to Jeddah and made their way to the holy city of Mecca. Ludovico di Varthema, an Italian traveler, 
had visited Mecca roughly a decade before Nanak. We turn to his account for a sense of what Nanak and Mardana might have encountered when they arrived. We will now speak of the very noble city of Mecca, which is most beautiful and very well inhabited. It contains about 6,000 families and houses that are extremely good like our own and probably worth three to 4,000 ducats each. The city is not surrounded by walls. To the south, there are two mountains which almost touch each other where is a pass to go to the gate of Mecca? On the other side, where the sun rises, is another mountain pass, through which is the road to the mountain where they celebrate the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac. At the foot of the said mountain, there are two very beautiful reservoirs of water, one for the caravan from Cairo and the other for the caravan from Damascus. You must know that in my opinion, the curse of God has been laid down upon the said city, for the country produces neither grass, nor trees, nor any one thing. The great part of the provisions come from Cairo and Ethiopia. When we entered the city, we found the caravan from Cairo, in which there were 64,000 camels. We found a great number of pilgrims some from Ethiopia, some from India, some from Persia, and some from Syria. Truly, I never saw so many people collected in one spot as during the 20 days I remained there. Nanagan Mardana, too, would have found a city teeming with pilgrims, speaking in a dizzying array of tongues and wearing many different kinds of clothes they would have encountered rich bazaars filled with the kinds of merchandise described by Divarthema. From India come a great many jewels and all sorts of spices. And from a city called Bangchala, modern-day Bengal, a large quantity of cotton and silk. In this city there is carried on a very extensive trade of merchandise, that is of jewels, spices, cotton, wax, and odiferous substances in great abundance. Nanak and Mardana, as hajis, would have visited the Kaaba at the center of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, witnessing and experiencing what Divarthema documents. midst of the said city, there is a very beautiful temple similar to the Colosseum of Rome, but not made of such large stones but of burnt bricks, and it is round in the same manner. It has 90 or 100 doors around it and is arched. On entering the said temple, you descend 
10 to 12 steps of marble, and here and there about the said entrance there stand men who sell jewels and nothing else. And when you have descended the said steps, you find the said temple all around, and everything, that is the walls, covered with gold. And under the said arches, there stand about 4,000 or 5,000 persons, men and women, which persons sell all kinds of fragrant things. The greater part are powders for preserving human bodies, because pagans come here from all part of the world. Truly, it would not be possible to describe the sweetness and the odors which are smelt within this temple. It appears like a spicery full of musk and other most delicious odors. Within the said temple, and uncovered and in the center, there is a tower around which there is a cloth of black silk, and there is a door, all of silver, the height of a man, by which you enter into the tower. All the people begin before day to go seven times around the tower, always touching and kissing each corner. And at about 10 or 12 paces distant from the said tower is another tower, like one of your chapels with three or four doors. In the center of this tower there is a very beautiful well, which is 70 fathoms deep, and the water is brackish. At this well stand six or eight men appointed to draw water for the people. And when the said people have gone seven times around the first tower, they go to this well and place themselves with their backs towards the brink, saying, In the name of God, God, pardon me my sins. And those who draw the water throw three buckets full over each person from the crown of their heads to their feet, and all bathe, even though their dress be made of silk. And they say in this wise, that all their sins remain there after the washing. And they say that the first tower which they walked around was the first house that Abraham built. And all after having thus bathed, they go by way of the valley to the mountain of which we have before spoken, and remain there two days and one night. And when they are all at the foot of the mountain, they make the sacrifice there. Every generous mind is the most readily delighted and incited to great deeds by novel events. Wherefore, in order to satisfy many of this disposition, I will add concisely the custom which is observed in their sacrifices. Every man and woman kills at least two or three and some four and some six sheep, so that I really believe that on the first day more than 30,000 sheep are killed by cutting their throats facing the east. Each person then gives them to the poor for the love of God. The city of Mecca had many hostels where pilgrims from different lands would stay. Outside the walls of the Grand Mosque lay a tiny mosque which routinely hosted Indian hajis. 
The custodian of this mosque was an Indian cleric, Kazi Ruknuddin. He was responsible for keeping the mosque clean, looking after the pilgrims, and waking them in the morning for prayers. Several important divines of the Sufi order had arrived that day from India, and Nanak and his companion blended in easily. All the pilgrims were tired and went to bed after evening prayers. Kazi Ruknuddin rose early and lit several lamps, preparing to wake the pilgrims up. As he passed through one of the chambers, to his shock, he beheld one of the pilgrims sleeping with his feet towards the Kaaba. The Kazi gasped. Such shameful disrespect! How dare this man sleep with his feet towards the Kaaba? Surely he must be a kafir, a non-believer. A pious Muslim would never be so disrespectful, and Allah forbid, if he is doing this deliberately? Shouting and cursing, Ghazi Ruknuddin rushed to where Nanak lay and kicked him. The shouting woke up many of the pilgrims, who, rubbing their sleep-laden eyes, entered the chamber that the noise was coming from. You kafir? the Kazi thundered, aiming another kick. Don't you know that it is blasphemy to turn your feet towards God? Nanak looked back at him, completely unruffled, and simply said, Forgive me, O Kazi. You may turn my feet to wherever God isn't. Completely unimpressed, the Kazi harumphed and kicked Nanak's feet away from the direction of the Kaaba. The entire assembly gasped, for they saw the holy Kaaba not where it had stood an instant ago, but in the direction where Nanak's feet now pointed. They looked at Nanak in alarm, suspecting that he might be a mighty sorcerer. Nanak just smiled and quoted from the Quran, And to Allah belongs the east and the west, so wherever you might turn, there is the face of Allah. Indeed, Allah is all-encompassing and knowing. Kazi Ruknuddin realized that he was in the presence of one who was divinely inspired. He and other holy men and scholars sat down with Nanak, and many deeply spiritual discussions ensued. Nanak was also taken to meet with one of the imams of the Grand Mosque. The imam posed a particularly difficult question to Nanak. This life, verily, is an ephemeral rest stop, O Nanak. How then shall we attain the divine? Nanak reflected deeply and answered in chaste Persian. 
یک عرض گفتم پیش تو درگوس کن کرتار حقہ کبیر کریم تو بے عیب پروردگار دنیا مقام فانی تحقیق دل دانی ممسر موئے اجرائیل گرفت دل ہیچ نہ دانی جن پسر پدر برادرا کس نیس دستنگیر آخر بیافتم کس نہ دارد چوس ود تقویر سب روز گشتم در ہوا کر دیم بدی خیال گاہ نہ نیکی کار کردم ممیاں چینی احوال بد بخت ہم چبخیل غافل بے نظر بے باک نانک بغوید جنترا تیرے چاکرا پا خاک I whisper in your ear, my Lord, I humbly do beseech. Forever true, perfect and kind, infinite is your reach. O my heart, know thee this truth, ephemeral is the world. Though Azrael has gripped my hair, of death I think I'm free. Nor wife, nor child, nor brother pair. Not one will hold my hand. As the final prayer is said, none will beside me stand. Each day and night I live in greed and evil schemes I make. Abjure each kind and gracious deed. This is my piteous state. Ill-fated, slanderous, negligent, of the fear of God bereft, Nanak, your humble servant, Lord, in the lowly dust is left. Nanak had articulated a profound truth that was fundamental to the way of life he would go on to impart to his followers. The hymn is primarily concerned with the impermanence of human life, as Nanak reiterates that life is like a way station, subject to the ravages of time. While we know that death is inevitable, we live our lives carelessly in reckless abandon, as if we were immortal. The bitter truth is that no matter how attached we are to our spouses, our parents, our children, or our siblings, ultimately we will all leave this world alone. None of them will go with us. None of them will be able to stay the hand of the messenger. On the face of it, Nanak's utterance may seem depressing, but that was not the intent at all. He was simply making us aware of the evanescence of life. Lack of this awareness is what makes us ill-fated, slanderous, slothful, shameless, and obdurate, as Nanak a keen observer of the human condition, describes us. The vision of Azrael, the messenger of death, holding us by our hair, was not meant to frighten. It was to help put this life in perspective. It was to drive the awareness of human mortality home, which surely has the potential to make us all better human beings.
Nanak was revered by the Muslims of Mecca as Nanak Pir Vali Hind, or the holy man from India. A mosque dedicated to him was built roughly half a mile north of the Grand Mosque. It is said that Nanak was asked for a keepsake as he left Mecca, and he left his staff and wooden sandals behind. From Mecca, Nanak and Mardana visited Medina, where the Prophet Muhammad passed away and where he is buried. They then proceeded to Baghdad, where inscriptions have been found commemorating his visit. From Baghdad, they traveled to the Holy Land and visited Jerusalem. Some accounts suggest that they might have visited Egypt and Abyssinia as well, before traveling to Syria and then to Istanbul in Turkey, the seat of the Ottoman Empire. Sayyid Muhammad Latif, an eminent Indian historian during the years of the British Raj, mentions a possible encounter Nanak had with Sultan Selim, the erstwhile ruler of the Ottoman Empire. A story is related of Nanak's visit to Istanbul and his interview with the Sultan, who was noted for his cupidity and his extreme oppression of his subjects. Nanak's admonitions had a great effect on the Sultan, who is said to have bestowed his hoarded treasures on the fakirs and the needy, and to have discontinued his tyranny over his people. The 19th century Sikh historian Gyan Singh writes that in these lands, Nanak was remembered as Nanak Kalandar, or Nanak the Sufi mystic, or Wali Hind, the Indian saint. Gyan Singh wrote about five very imposing houses built in the memory of Nanak in Aden, Jeddah, Mecca, Medina, and Baghdad. During his time, four of these places were under the care of the Ottoman Empire. The priests and caretakers of these houses were the employees of the Turkish ruler. With the exception of Aden, all had a functioning langar or free kitchen where visitors were fed. Gyan Singh based his account on descriptions provided by many visitors from the Punjab who had visited these houses during Hajj. All the houses were built in the shape of a mosque with a golden dome. The pilgrims, having completed their journey to the Middle East, decided to return to the Punjab. They took the land route back, most likely through Tehran, Kandahar, Kabul, and Peshawar. Small communities of Nanak's followers sprang up in all of these places and continued to thrive for centuries. The travelers rested for a bit in Multan, in modern-day Pakistan, on their way home. Nanak's fame had spread far and wide, and people flocked to see him, exciting the envy of one of the local divines, who decided to send Nanak a subtle message. He sent Nanak a cup of milk, full to the very brim, suggesting that the market for holy men in Multan was rather saturated, and there was no need for another one. Nanak, equally subtle, placed the fragrant petals of the jasmine flower on the milk. The cup did not overflow, and the milk was suffused with the sweet smell of the flower.
It was during the return journey from the Middle East that Nanak decided to visit again with his beloved follower Pailallo the carpenter. That is when the sack of Sayyidpur occurred, and Nanak had his memorable encounter with Emperor Babur. Utterly dismayed by the carnage he saw around him, Nanak's soul wept, and his anguish poured out in the form of a hymn. Jaisi mein aave khasm ki bani taisda kari gyan ve lalo Paap ki janjale kabulo taaya jodi mange daan ve lalo Saram taram doe shaap khaloe kood fire pardhan ve lalo Kaziyan bamana ki gal thakki agad pade saitan ve lalo Muslimaniyan pade kateba kasht mein kare khudaye ve lalo ਜਾਤ ਸਨਾਤੀ ਹੋਰ ਹਿੰਦਵਾਣੀਆਂ ਐ ਵੀ ਲੇਖੇ ਲਾਏ ਵੇ ਲਾਲੋ ਖੂਨ ਕੇ ਸੋਹਲੇ ਗਾਵੀਏ ਨਾਨਕ ਰਤ ਕਾ ਕੁੰਗੂ ਪਾਏ ਵੇ ਲਾਲੋ as my lord bids me to speak thus lalo do my words emerge from kabul harks a sinful groom leading this wedding throng of doom the lustful groom his wedding band in dowry they will take this land shame and righteousness have died as evil struts in haughty pride brahmins and kazis have fled satan he reads the wedding vows the women turn to the holy book allah allah they cry forsook the pain of every dame and lass highborn or spawn of lowly blood O oh, lalo terrible is their fate they can't survive this gruesome flood where are the bridal songs of joy where is the fragrant saffron spray nanak he must sing songs of blood on this grisly frightful wedding day nanak took the tyrannical babur to task heaping scorn upon him and excoriating the merciless depredation unleashed by his hordes of course it was not apparent at that time but with these words nanak was laying the foundation of the sikh principle of fighting oppression and standing up to tyranny a tradition that was to have profound consequences for his followers and the new faith that he was in the process of founding a tradition that would be institutionalized in dramatic fashion by a successor almost 2 centuries later these words were not just for babur they applied equally to every merciless tyrant who targeted the innocent in a never ending dance of death and misery transcending geography and culture from time immemorial the powerful in a quest for wealth territory or glory have targeted those that are least equipped to resist the sack of sayyidpur has been enacted many times over to the eternal shame of the human race which seems ever willing to suspend compassion in the name of conquest or profit nanak however was unwilling to accept this ਜਾ ਕੇ ਆਰੇ ਦੇ ਹੋਗੋ
the Wanderers were back. Nanak and Mardana returned to the Punjab, never to wander again. Nanak doffed his pilgrim's dress and put on regular clothes, very visibly rejecting the life of an ascetic. He established a community on the banks of the river Ravi at Kartarpur, opposite the modern-day town of Dera Baba Nanak. The young man who had left Sultanpur on a mission had returned home a greybeard, a sage, a holy man who was known and deeply respected in lands distant and near. Somewhere along the journey, Nanak had become Guru Nanak. He had spent a lifetime fighting oppression and discrimination, espousing equality and debunking ritualism and superstition. He had shown the path of righteousness to kings and commoners. He now had communities of followers in far-flung places who had been inspired by his message. The time had come for Nanak to synthesize everything that he had experienced or divined into a unique way of life. For a new faith had been born. The story of the Sikhs is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultar's Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Sikhs in Delhi in 1984. The story of the Sikhs is produced by Almast Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode also features a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Dharm Singh Zakmi and his ensemble. Musical contributors to this episode are Indian classical guitar maestro Ritom Sarkar and vocalist J. Mir Kar. The Story of the Sikhs is sponsored by the Chardli Kala Foundation, a nonprofit that helps young Sikhs in the diaspora understand the values of their faith. Serial entrepreneur Dr. Ratinder Paul Singh Ahuja and the Sawney Family Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are two things you can do to help us reach more listeners. Please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to write a short review. I'm co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. Our research assistant is Lucy Suchek. In the next episode, we will learn of the last days of Guru Nanak and his faithful companion Mardana. We will learn about how Guru Nanak chose a successor to carry on his mission and the growth of a fledgling faith.
जब रोज Thank you. 
Oh! <laughs> 